there's a lot of I can only diagnose what you tell me. Yeah, I was, yeah, that's a that's a great way to put it. Whatever information you put forward, I'm happy to diagnose. A lie, truth, I don't care. Dear Sigmund. Hey, welcome to Dear Sigmund. This is our podcast. Uh, myself, J.P. Shand. Uh, I'm a board-certified psychiatrist, uh, general adult psychiatrist, and forensic psychiatrist. Um, and I, uh, yeah, treat people. All day? Yeah. <laughs> yes. I'm an inpatient psychiatrist now. So, uh, yeah, as opposed to outpatient. So inpatient is people that, like, have an overnight stay? Yes. Okay. Mostly multiple nights. Okay. Um, and I'm Shannon Miller. Um, a licensed clinical social worker and owner of Apricity Behavior Health, um, an online therapy organization that meets the mental health needs of Americans living overseas. And I do not have inpatient clients. <sighs> if you are an inpatient client, you would not be appropriate for me to be treating in an online format. Yeah. And if you are, actually, you wouldn't have access to listen to this podcast. In inpatient yeah. treatment? A lot there. of restrictions. Why? Oh, I mean, because we see everything from every gamut. You know, it's very hard to have, you know, uh, one person allowed to have their headphones and the next person trying to, like, you know, hurt themselves with headphones. Um, Can you have any sort of, like, what are you allowed to have? Uh, oh, boy. Uh, I mean, uh, there's there's there are many restrictions, but there's a lot of, I think liberty in some of those restrictions. You're not bothered by your phone all the time. There's not a TV in your room to be distracted all the time with to try to pull you out of the treatment. That's realm. not answering my question. What am I allowed to have? <laughs> <laughs> You're allowed to have everything except for things that you could really hurt yourself with is mainly, you know, and you well, can I can't just hurt think, myself with my phone. You could. I've seen people do all sorts of, you know, you can break the glass and cut yourself with it. And yeah. I never thought of that. You really, I, I know, but people have. And, wow. Yeah. I know. Hmm. I don't want people to shy away from inpatient. I mean, if you need inpatient, you need inpatient. Um, it's the probably the fastest, uh, I don't know, most intensive therapy that we have. And I always strive for the least restrictive level of care for anybody. Um, least restrictive being like outpatient, right? And mm -hmm. highly restrictive is, mm -hmm. you know, you're really struggling mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. And so you need to have certain restrictions to stay safe. Is that an official thing where we try to meet the needs of the patient in the least restrictive environment? Yes, it is. And actually in forensic psychiatry, that's something I really focus on, um, okay. is this balance of individual autonomy, but also safety. Uh, and, and what I have to testify in courts to for people who are sometimes involuntarily civilly committed, you know, always, always very sad thing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, do they require this level or a certain level of restriction in order to remain safe until they can get better? Um, I don't work in that world. No. If you graduate to that world, then at that point, I can't treat you. Because pharmacological intervention needs yeah. to happen before the work that I do would have value. Yeah, yeah. But, I'll, I'll, I mean, we have therapists, mm -hmm. inpatient, wonderful mm -hmm. therapists, inpatient. But, yeah, but that is concurrent with all these other. Right, right. Much right. more, I think, um, I want to say robust therapies. Multi multifactorial approaches. That's fancy language. <laughs> Multiple approaches, I suppose. Yeah. We do a lot of shit. A lot of stuff. All of it. Yeah. All of it. Anything we can do to help you, I will help you in every way I can. All right. <laughs> All right, Jesse. Hit us up. What's the first question? Dear Sigmund, I am a surrogate and I will be delivering in a couple of weeks. What do you think I can expect with potential postpartum depression and adjusting to life after the baby is gone? Do you have any tips for coping? Well, oh, I would say um, expecting postpartum. Do you have a history of depression with other pregnancies? I don't know if this is your first pregnancy or not, but was there postpartum before? Do you have depressive episodes outside of pregnancy? That sort of thing. Actually, can I clarify something real quick? Yeah. Because it's going to be... Did I screw we now up? Call it, no, we now call it peripartum depression. Oh, we're like the Brits? Well, peripartum is... Uh, is that a British term? I want yeah. So, so the, what it's getting at now is that we've identified it doesn't just happen postpartum, after the birth, 
right? Uh, but actually what science has really fleshed out is that, um, or evidence has fleshed out, that it really starts before, during, and after the birth. So we try not to just say, well, you only get depressed after you deliver, so it's not postpartum. We say, oh, no, there's actually much more kind of a longitudinal spectrum of when this Not everybody's the happening, glowing butterfly during pregnancy. <laughs> I speak from experience. And, and what you were getting at was um, this idea of if you have m- previous major depressive episodes, you are at an increased risk for what we call peripartum, previously known as postpartum right. depression. Right. There's or also- having depressive symptoms around being pregnant, yeah. giving birth, all of that sort of thing. hormonal instability. But so see, I was told it? that it also doesn't necessarily directly relate to the hormonal instability, that it's about the change in role in life. It's about having your life hijacked from you mm-hmm. and not being prepared for that. Because who can really You're be prepared? hijacked, giving your life to another. No, it's hijacked. <laughs> it's freaking hijacked. Like, I couldn't eat a piece of chocolate cake when I wanted to eat chocolate cake. That's hijacking. I wasn't giving anything. I wanted that cake. <laughs> when we were pregnant, I felt fine. We? I'm just kidding. It was a we? Joke. <laughs> okay. Whew, I was almost going to get on a soapbox. Oh, my goodness. Um, I, I barely felt nauseous at all. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. And your ribs didn't split apart, and you weren't the one told to rub a cold Coke can over it. The baby will move. Um, <laughs> Is that real advice? Yeah, the that's what advice? I was actually told. Oh, wow. Rub a cold can of Coke over it and try to encourage her to get up out of your ribs. Where's she going to go? <laughs> like, oh, let me just scoot around here to the other side. Right, the other rib. Yeah, like what? <laughs> Slightly below that rib. Yeah, where you are. the cold can of Coke thing. Like, please, save it. There's some really interesting other things. Postpartum depression gets a lot of attention. Actually, two things I want to mention real quick. One, there's a thing as paternal postpartum depression. Paternal oh, cry me a river. I know, I know, but I was asked about this for a news channel once, and uh, they did a whole story on it. Uh, there is some kind of, uh, there's some science behind this. Uh, you know, I don't want to float this too hard because it's still kind of being studied, but there's this idea that uh, there are a lot of changes in the man that do have some evidence in evolution that our hormones change to also protect newborn infants and not have as aggressive of a nature. And actually, studies have fleshed out that testosterone reduces at the time of, yeah. Ooh, do you a, feel threatened by that? No, not. I love it. I'm a very sensitive guy. I, mm-hmm. Yeah, at baseline. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then also the other two, you know, other things that got less attention are things like um, peripartum uh, OCD or peripartum psychosis. Oh, things that yeah. Really are very profound and m- mm-hmm. you know more obvious, I think, to outside observers and ex- people who are experiencing right. it than, right. than the But there's depression. shame around postpartum depression. Oh gosh, there so is sad. so much shame. I'm like, oh, you have this baby. It's like, yeah, and I'm a fucking train wreck. No one wants to hear that. All the focus goes on the baby, and they forget about yeah. the woman that made it all possible kind totally. of thing. And women hide it for that shame, which yeah. is really, it's so sad. That really... Uh, that affects me. I, I feel really terrible because, you know, people are trying to put their best foot forward. No, I'm a great mom. I can do this. I'm fine. But really, they're suffering in silence because they don't want to also express how much they're suffering. Right. Because I asked for this. I got pregnant. And now I'm upset about the fact that this baby is here right now and they can't always put words to it. I mean, it is a confusing time. So to this listener, I hope you are a listener. Um I would say there's this thing called the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale. Mm -hmm. It's open source, meaning anybody can take it. It's on the Internet. They're not going to charge you to use it or anything like that. And it's 10 questions that can be distilled down to three questions. And with three questions, they can tell you with 95% accuracy of whether or not you have what we would call PPD, perinatal or postnatal depression. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, And those three things come down to, I blame myself unnecessarily when things go wrong. I have anxious or worried. I am anxious or worried for no good reason. Okay. And I have felt scared or panicky for no good reason. If you answer yes to those things, then with 95% accuracy, we can say, yep, you're Mm. in that perinatal depression 
face. Or there's, or there's a concurrence of those, of answering yes to those three things that are consistent with individuals who are experiencing the other symptoms of a perinatal depression. That's probably really what it means. Or in plain English, it means you're depressed. Yeah, or these, these are very sensitive questions oh, as opposed to being specific. Well, there's a, there's a whole kind of... Like no one's writing a research right, paper fine. right now. All right, fine. Yeah. Like, like if you're those are good to know. If you're answering <laughs> yes to these things... I was just churning, though. That's a really interesting fact. I didn't know about mm -hmm. that in the Edinburgh... Mm -hmm. And it's been studied that we yeah. can take the Edinburgh study, which is 10 questions, distill it down right. to three and say, if you're answering yes to these... There is a very high likelihood with 95% yeah. accuracy. We're saying, yeah, that's probably what's going on here. Um, you can also check another one that's called the postpartum depression screening. And that's 35 questions. Oh, yeah. Um, the other thing, too, is to expect your mood to be all over the place first week postpartum. Right. But you can take the screener test right and see if that's going to be a good indicator if that's the way it's going right so we have screening mechanisms and then i'm totally drawing a blank on like what the next thing is so like we first see like diagnostic hey, yeah like are we headed that way mm -hmm. is it likely should we go on to a more in-depth thing so in other words if the screening says yes then we move on and we really get into it of like okay what's going on mm-hmm um, this is the difference between, uh, I was kind of starting to go into it for a second, sensitivity and specificity in terms of testing. Highly sensitive tests will pick up a bunch of people and say, okay, these, these people are identified as having an issue, but there's a whole bunch of people that are collected in this data set that actually, you know, screen positive, but they don't actually have, but you don't miss many people that said yes to these questions. So false positives. Have, yes. Yeah. But it, I, I would just... Clarify, if you didn't answer yes to those questions, there's still a good chance that you are suffering and you should still seek treatment. The fact that you're seeking yes. out this test I, I, to yeah. say something's not right mm -hmm. is a big enough clue to me as a therapist to something's say something's not right. Something's not right. Yeah. I don't need a test to tell me something's not right. Right. And just because you pass that test doesn't mean that you shouldn't be seeking right, help. Right. Because I can treatment. look at it and say, I felt scared or panicky for no good reason. Nope. Yeah, no, I got good reason. No, I got a newborn. I hold it. What if I drop right. it? Right. Yeah. I can rationalize anything away. <laughs> um, and also just a reminder that it's therapy plus medication that's the most effective treatment. Yeah. Right? So you want to go visit that therapist and visit a doctor that's able to prescribe. And often uh, OB-GYNs, I've seen many, many that will prescribe. Obi-Wans? Oh, Obi-Gyne. <laughs> Obi -Gyne. Obstetrician yeah. gynecologist. Obi-Gyne. Obi okay. Gynes. Okay. The, um, I'm not down on the lingo. <laughs> they, uh, they often prescribe and, uh, and, and do a lot of these screenings and will help you connect with your primary care doctor or maybe help you connect with a psychiatrist who can help you through these mm -hmm. things. And a lot of people you know, talk about the risk of uh, these medications through the breast milk or even during third trimester when people are experiencing these uh, episodes or people who are planning on getting pregnant have a lot of concerns mm -hmm. about how these medications can affect uh, fetuses. Um, and I would say they're... Would that be feti? Feti. I was just thinking the same thing. That's funny. We're <laughs> the feti. Mind warp. That is definitely worth a discussion with your provider because uh, generally speaking, uh, well, there are medications out there that can help that have little to no really well-documented effects okay. on either neonates or through the breast milk during, uh, you know, breastfeeding. Okay. Yeah, so it's just worth the discussion. If you, even if, even so if medication you say, is not just like across the board off limits. Totally. Like there are options yes. in which you do not transmit the medication to the baby or it is at a minimal. Um, well, that the benefit, I'll say it this way, the benefit outweighs the risk. Right. Whereas... Studies have fleshed out that an inattentive or majorly depressed parent is much more damaging. Oh, we could do a whole podcast right? on than, that. Right. Then the potential right. for the possibility of Maybe a little bit of Zoloft a getting through. Right. Getting through the breast milk. 
that 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 emotional connection, that loss of the emotional connection, if the if the, the mother or parent the is early tremendously yeah exactly depressed or emotionally unavailable or really struggling otherwise, that is more damaging than the possibility of some of the medication. But this is something that you should definitely talk with your own provider about okay. and just get the information. I don't want people to right. say, well, uh, I'm not going to take any medication anyway, so what's the point of even talking about it? Or I'm not going to do it anyway, so what's the point of mentioning it and admitting you know, what I feel like is a flaw? Do not do that because things really can... Right, spiral. Right. But this person that asked the question is a surrogate. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. So she's not taking that baby home. She's giving birth and handing a baby off. Do they? How many surrogates do you think pump and give breast milk to the infant? I don't know. I wonder. What made you think of that? Well, I don't know, because then I was. I don't know. I was just thinking, what? Where does that connection end? Is it the day you hand them off? I bet you there's a lot of surrogates that will probably provide breast milk. Or not. I don't know. That's why I was a question. I wouldn't want to if I was a surrogate. Yeah. That's too much of a connection. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like the long, slow, painful death by oh, a thousand cuts. God. Well, what if you're I mean, really happy to give your baby to somebody who really needs it? No, I would. But then I wouldn't want to like prolong this attachment and this connection uh -huh. and knowing that I'm taking care of this baby. Like the longer the connection goes on, the more the vested interest. We could just pump is. and then give it to like Uber Milk <laughs> to deliver it. Yeah, that's very clinical. That you're a... right. You're right. I should just do that. Is Uber right. Milk something we should patent? <laughs> that would be amazing. Oh, you remember wet nurse was a thing, like a wet nurse probably still is a thing. Well, what are they? What are they? The lactation specialists now, the women that come in oh, here yeah. in America who like that. help you learn to like yeah. utilize your own breast milk to the best ability. But oh, no, but but called? they would just like um, latch your baby for you, like leche, um, dulce leche. No, not sweet milk. No. Um, <laughs> Okay, we're going to sit in dead silence no, until no. I figure this out. <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, but yeah, I wonder if wet nurse is still a thing. It probably is. So yes. if one of the listeners writes well, in, I'm sure. Well, if not in America, there are cultures around the world. Absolutely. Yeah, right? It's got to still be. Breast milk is breast milk. Hmm. Well, uh, man, uh, I, I cannot imagine the, the gift emotional. The this woman is giving. Yeah. And the emotional sacrifice this individual is really, and you know, and maybe they identify as such, or maybe this is really just something that is such a clear cut thing that they're willing to do and say, you know, I am, this is the right thing to do. And maybe, you know, they, they feel that there's not a huge emotional sacrifice, or maybe but they I'm do, very impressed. Yeah. It's very clear cut that this is the right thing to do. However, concurrently, there's a, still also an emotional toll to be paid. Totally. And I'm, I'm impressed that she's recognizing that. Um, uh, I, I would say, honestly, with this one, I would say find find a professional to talk to. Have have some kind of a connection. Board. Yeah, with a professional who can really walk you through this or at least be that. Emotional container. Yeah. Oh, nice. That place where you just go and you just like, bleh, you give it to them. Yeah. And let them hold your emotions for you and allow you to just sort of expend that energy from your body. It's a yeah. lot of what therapists do. We just hold the emotions and the space for other people. That's why you can't watch those movies. Yeah. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you very much. Full <laughs> <laughs> circle of the last episode. Yeah. <laughs> Although I had a bunch of container jokes in there. I was thinking about like milk no. containers. You can just when you were just dumping all that, those. I just had so just many that save in my head. those. <laughs> all right, let's have the next question. Dear Sigmund. How often do people get misdiagnosed or labeled with a disorder incorrectly? Mm. All the time. Yeah. Yeah. All the time. I, you know, sorry, I'm staring off into space while I'm trying to answer this because it probably, how often is a quantitative question? Uh, it's very hard to answer that definitively because you probably. I don't think they want a statistic. <laughs> I think they want to know like, eh, sometimes. Yeah. All the time. Well, I'll tell you. Okay, how about this? We'll break it down into primary care doctors and then specialists, Ooh. right? Because a PCP is getting the brunt of the, I mean, a 
absolutely the lion's share of the concerns that an individual has about their emotional states. They are the gatekeepers. They are the first person most of the time that an individual will connect with uh, saying, hey, I think something's wrong. I'm anxious. I'm depressed. I'm, you know, seeing or hearing things I don't believe are real. Any one of those things. The diagnosis that they will provide is often um, better than a layman. Right. Clearly, uh, they have much more knowledge in that field, but uh, their knowledge will probably be in kind of the, you know, the, the, the general categories that I've expressed before. Is this a psychotic experience? Is this an anxious experience or a depressed mood experience? Um, and then to really get into uh, probably the categorical true DSM-5 with subspecifiers to get a true accurate diagnosis I would say that should be done by a clinician who specializes in the field. But even then, uh, there's a lot of I can only diagnose what you tell me. Yeah, I was, yeah, that's a that's a great way to put it. Whatever information you put forward, I'm happy to diagnose. A lie, the truth, I don't care. Yeah, and we're not mind readers. That's true. Exactly. Exactly. Although I do read between the lines a lot. I can people will tell me one thing and I'll hear, you know, probably what's going on below the surface some of the time. You're clairvoyant. <laughs> There's isn't there a joke somewhere in there that's uh oh, that was the yeah, in uh Zoolander. It's like I'm bulimic. You can read minds. <laughs> oh my so, I hope our uh, one listener <laughs> Really likes the Zoolander reference. So there are a lot of overlapping diagnostic uh, symptoms. So inattentive, right? I have poor attention concentration. That is a symptom of major depressive disorder. That's 15 things. That's a symptom of generalized anxiety disorder. That's a symptom of ADHD, whether it's combined inattentive or hyperactive type. Um, I mean, it could be... At infinitum, or or I'm so internally stimulated by hearing auditory hallucinations that I can't concentrate on what's in front of me. So that one, these singular things that people can identify very easily, often do have multiple explanations, which is why you really need to sit with somebody for an hour plus to really you deepen pry the apart relationship, yeah. right? Like it, these sort of diagnoses, you have to really be in relationship with the patient. You call them patients, I call them clients, but you mm -hmm. really have to like, there has to be more than just, I'm sick to my stomach, my head hurts. Like, it could be a million things. Right. But also with mental health kind of things, it's like, one, you have to figure out, do I have someone that's just seeking a drug seeker? Right? Because people know the script that they have to say to mm -hmm. get what they want out of a, a healthcare professional. Right. Then you have to filter out like, OK, could it be this? Could it be that? It's really a whole matrices of information that you're putting together. And it's at the pace that the person's willing to share it with you. Mm -hmm. That's, right? a, that's you a can't point. you can't force it out of people. Yeah. Right. You can't like put a stethoscope on their chest and be like, oh, OK, this is what's going on. There's anxious thoughts. There's this. There's that. Like there's no X-ray. Yes. So right. There's we no have blood to test. we have to yeah. poke around and sort of feel our way through it. There's no there's no blood test that's gonna say oh well it's this this and this. Right. Okay. You and dog. that alarm. It's a six o'clock. I know it. It's feed I gotta the feed the dog. Feed the dog. I also just so everybody knows that even though that alarm goes off every day in my life, I've probably fed the dog four times in total. Out of thousands of times that alarm going off. Why do you still have the alarm then? <laughs> I don't know. That dog is starving. I'm hopeful. <laughs> No, the dog's been fed four times. My and wonderful four years family old. Yeah, feeds the dog. Um, but see, that's the thing. Like, you've got to be in relationship because I can't send you with a prescription and go get this blood work done and then we'll interpret the results. Right. It's all about the relationship and what you're willing to share with me. And the level to which you're willing to share is really dependent on how much you trust me mm -hmm. and how much shame you're experiencing around these symptoms. Yeah. In therapy, that's that's really uh, accurate. You're right. And you also have the advantage in therapy of seeing somebody weekly as a psychiatrist. You know, I only get the opportunity to see somebody. Well, in, in my inpatient works a little different, but as outpatient psychiatrist, you see somebody once a month to once every three months. Right. You know, maybe right. once you get to know them, you see them once every six months or a year. 
So you have these really finite periods of time to really do an incredible amount of diagnostical digging and understanding the origin of behavior, right. um, which is very complicated in itself. But I can't tell you the number of people that come to me and say, I've got Alzheimer's disease because I can't remember anything. And, uh, you know, that obviously when they're 30 years old, I say, okay, well, that's not the diagnosis. But what they're telling me is I have really poor attention concentration. So then I'm going to go down all of the avenues of the things that I know cause poor attention concentration memory. Mm -hmm. And, you know, first of all, I, I want to rule out obviously the you know, brain-eating bacteria, you know, Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. I want to make sure that the this what? is, yeah, oh, there's a, like a prion in the brain that kind of eats brain that tissue. That brain-eating yeah. disease? Yeah, Okay. But, uh, but, you know, I'm going to start with the most severe, and then I'm going to try to figure out all of the things that are not life-threatening that this could be. Often, honestly, it's anxiety. Don't all roads lead back to anxiety? <laughs> At least, yeah, humans are anxious creatures. We are very anxious. I mean, Focus at least I find that in my work. If it's not something that's pathological, that's something that's more um, environmentally caused, like it's not due to a chemical imbalance in the brain, all roads lead back to anxiety. Mm. At the very core root of it, I find that to be true a lot of the time. Yeah. I will say, so my understanding of uh, generalized anxiety disorder, I think, does have a little more rootedness in... Um, or a lot more roots in neurochemical pathology because I can treat it with SSRIs. Um, but the, yeah, the thing that you pose is this nature versus nurture idea. Mm -hmm. You know, is this a result of a past experience that has led you to be anxious or hypervigilant or mm -hmm. expecting something bad You've to happen? You've learned that you need to be this way in this situation. Yeah. And then the brain grabs a hold of it and they're like, wait, if we're this way in this situation, wouldn't it be amazing if we were also anxious in all of these situations? Yeah. I always equate anxiety to like an unruly toddler. Mm. I want what I want. I want it now. And you can't stop me. And this is the anxiety. That, yeah, that's your anxiety, anxiety speaking. Yeah. yeah. Anxiety is an unruly toddler. Yeah. That you are just like, oh, shit. Do I want to face this right now head on and have the blow up? Right. Which is our anxiety peaking and then plummeting. Or do I just want to placate it? Fine. Here's your sippy cup. The purple one with the exact lid that you want. Right. And then it goes away. That's doing the disorder. That's pandering to the toddler, pandering to anxiety. Whereas if you say, no, you can actually drink out of any cup. I'm not going to drink out of anything. OK, well, there's your cup. Drink or don't drink. OK. And anxiety is just like, I'm going to spin up. I'm going to spin up. I'm going to like way get out of control. And You have to be willing to sit in that and tolerate your own anxiety, which then requires you to build what we call distress tolerance. Yeah, that's a really that's right. a, yeah. I am full a graphic of this way of, of looking at this. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Yeah. yeah, because also it helps anthropomorphizing to, the anxiety. Deep, well, I like the simpler word of depersonalizing. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, let's go with the simplest here. You are not your anxiety. You have anxiety. Sometimes yeah. anxiety is making decisions for you, but you are not your anxiety. Anxiety is a toddler that lives inside of you. Mm -hmm. Oh, and let's let, let's just clarify, there's a whole array of anxieties, right? One is PTSD, which we addressed in the last episode, mm -hmm. post-traumatic stress disorder. That's an anxiety category. Obsessive compulsive disorder is an anxiety category. Generalized anxiety, specific phobias are anxieties. So there's a, there's a whole bunch of masks that anxiety wears. Right. Um, but you at your core, the spirit and essence of who you are, you are not your OCD, you are not your PTSD or any other acronym we can throw at you. Mm -hmm. You are separate from that. Mm -hmm. And so it helps to conceptualize it as this entity that resides inside of you. I like that. Kind of removing yourself from it. I am not my mm -hmm. disease. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so then you have to choose, am I going to allow this unruly temper tantrum throwing toddler to make my decisions for me? Or am I going to hear them? I get where they're coming from, but I still actually have to choose this. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it might just be easier to fuck it, just give in to the toddler. And other times it may be like, no, I'm taking a stand. I have to go get that vaccination or else I cannot enroll in college. Yeah. That sounds like a really personal example, and it is. <laughs> there I was. Yes. 1994. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, anxiety is amazing. And what's what's really interesting about anxiety is you need some. You need Absolutely. anxiety. Absolutely, it's what keeps us function. alive. It's yes. what keeps you from walking out in front of the bus. Right, paying your bills. Yeah, going to school. So, right, because you know I want to get ahead, and if I don't do that, then I'm gonna be broke and I'm gonna die in a box. So abstinence I don't do that thing. from anxiety is not a choice yeah. because we need it. It's an integral thing to functioning. Yes. It's just too much anxiety is paralyzing and too little anxiety is paralyzing. Paralyzing? Yeah, it's, it's just or inefficient. Fine. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, we do need anxiety is what says, oh, this isn't a good situation. I need to get out of here. Yeah, yeah. I need to be proactive about right. something. Right. But it's recognizing when it's inhibiting day-to-day -day life functions. It's not the one-off where you're like, eh, maybe I shouldn't ride this roller coaster, right? Yeah. And let's think about it. Take the roller coaster example. You're standing in line. The anxiety gets higher, higher, and higher with each like little onslaught of people that gets to get on the ride until finally it's your turn and your anxiety is peaking. What happens after that ride takes off and you're in the middle of it? Anxiety crashes because you're in the middle of it. You're doing it. Yes, you get all those feelings stuff like that, but when you get off that ride, you have no anxiety. So anxiety build, 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 crashes. Yeah. And that's exposure therapy. You didn't get out of line and go go stand down there and like watch with everybody else because your anxiety you would still be in an anxious state if that's what you chose to do. You didn't. You chose to get on the ride and confront the very thing that was causing you anxiety. So it build, build, builds and then crashes. Or, or it leads to endorphins, right? That that kind of pleasure, thrill, excitement. In the roller coaster example, yeah. absolutely, yes. But like if it's something about like confronting your mother and telling her you're not coming home for Christmas, mm. you have a lot of anxiety around that. But then once you actually come out with it and be like, no, mom, I'm not, you know, coming home for Christmas this year. Once you say those words, there's a marked relief that's in there. No matter what her response is to that you're going to feel better because you just got it out. Yeah, and most of the time the response is much less than your anxiety has dictated it is going to be. Right. Usually the anxiety is much worse than the actual event. Right, the anticipation of it. Yeah. Like going to get a vaccination. Oh my God, I'm going to get a shot. See, I don't get on that roller coaster. I, I wanted to say that earlier. I'm, I'm the guy who's going to wait in the whole line, be so anxious, they're going to open the gate to do it, and I'm just going to walk right off the other side of the roller coaster and be like, nope, nope, I'll watch you guys go without me. Seriously? I'm good. Oh, I hate roller coasters. I have way too much shame to oh. actually let myself walk through to the other side and be like, see ya. <laughs> I will ride that thing into Oh, not myself. me. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, no. That's an interesting study of like how much self-confidence then plays a role in management of your anxiety. Our self-preservation. Yes, right. Well, there probably yeah. is a balance there. Yeah. Good point. I mean, to that though, anxiety is really complex because then if you think about it like when you said that self-preservation, it reminds me of like the whole female thing and how we've been taught to sort of suppress our own anxious antenna that go up. Like we disregard our own intuition to be pleasing. Mm. It's just kind of like a, a meme in right. cur current culture. I mean. Right. But current patri culture? Patriarchal culture. Is that what you're meaning? That idea of like a subservient uh, behavior. Girls are taught to be pleasing. Yes. Not to be like, I'm not going to go hug Aunt Gertrude. Mm -hmm. you, you go over there and you'll hug her whether you want to or not. And curtsy. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Kiss the ring. <laughs> kind of thing. Like we're taught to sort of suppress our own inner like, I don't want to do that. Yeah. You will go do it because if you don't, it's an embarrassment. So we choose being pleasing over following our intuition. So you'll get off the roller coaster. You'll be like, fuck it, I'm not doing it. I don't want to do it. Whereas <laughs> I'm fools. like, I'm like, oh, you'll think something bad of me. Let me just sit here and like be miserable. So at that point, you're weighing your two anxieties. My anxiety over looking like I am not confident and the shame that Society goes in. And the anxiety me. over tolerating this roller coaster. Right. Oh, man. It's hell being a woman. I was going to say, you just, it is hell being a just woman. suffer. Think about that. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but that's really the equation that a woman will often do. Yeah. What's the anxiety of actually following my intuition and listening to my anxiety versus the societal shaming or what I perceive to be will, will be the societal shaming. Wow. 
Do we answer that question? <laughs> I think so. This all goes back to like a surrogate that's worried about postpartum depression. And I would say, yeah. look up the Edinburgh postnatal depression scale. Three questions. And your insight is already great. I mean, you're already predicting that I'm going to have an emotional roller coaster after this thing or something might be wrong. So I would say just seek seek help as early as possible. Right. Preventative right. is the best way to go in that regard. Yeah. If yeah, you can't prevent somebody it. Earlier. Oh, I'm just, I'm sorry. Yeah, Establish yeah, that relationship ahead of time on. so that when the symptoms, yeah. if and when they do hit full force, you already have a working relationship that you can go in and just be, just lay it out there. Yeah. Right? Yep. There's not the get to know you phase. You've already worked through that. Totally. All right, Jesse, what's the next one? Dear Sigmund, money, dot, dot, dot. We inherited some money from a family member who passed. If I was a religious person, I'd say it's a blessing. What I really want to say is, in all caps, what a pain in the ass. The whole point of this sudden windfall is to help family, but it's turning us into a family bank. Tips for healthy boundaries with regard to money and families. No. Oh, man. No. Just say no. no. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. No is a whole and complete sentence. That is a subject, predicate, noun, verb, adjective. No. Yeah. It, it, this reminds me of... Um, these people, I think there's a whole documentary about this. Individuals who win the lottery and are bankrupt by... Yeah, because uh, they had no financial yeah, management skills later. beforehand. A million! Yeah. It'll last forever! Totally. And then apparently people, these lottery winners, get letters from all over the nation and world saying, my cousin has, you know... Kritzfeld-Jakob disease, and his brain is being eaten by this prion, and if we just had this money, then we could get this life-saving treatment, and therefore... But if we could God... wrap his brain in $100 bills, yeah. <laughs> it would stop. Please send us dollars. <laughs> and, uh, and this idea that um, God... I, I heard this, too. God gave you that money so that you could help us, and I know that that is... You know, God working through you to help us. And apparently these people just get inundated with these letters. An unbelievable amounts. So much so that that burden is overwhelming. They need to acquaint like... themselves with the delete button. <laughs> <laughs> this person. This is hand mail. This is snail mail. Oh. Yes. This Christopher Yaka patient. Then you only pick it. up the mail on the same day that the trash goes. So oh. when you get it out of the mailbox, you just walk right over and you just write in. Write in. It's really, you know, and it really makes... um. What may seem like a like an amazing windfall quickly becomes a resource that probably is insufficient to meet the demands. So now Absolutely. all of a sudden, yeah, you get a million dollars, and all of a sudden you have a million people asking for ten thousand dollars. All of a sudden, I mean, now you know mm -hmm. you don't even have nearly enough money to meet the billion dollar demand mm -hmm. on your mm -hmm. you know that's being requested mm -hmm. of you. Mm -hmm. So what I would say is kind of going back to like your basic idea of boundaries mm. is. What are your boundaries on this? What are you willing to do and what are you not willing to do? And you're like, I don't freaking know. Well, what will clue you in to where you're really at on that is resentment. When somebody asks you something, um, asks you like, hey, JP, lend me 20 bucks for dinner. You know, if you feel the slightest bit resentment of like, why is she asking me for money? That's your boundaries been crossed. Like, like the answer is no. Right. <laughs> If I ask you for 20 bucks for dinner, you're like, okay, here. And you don't think anything of it, then that's not where your boundary was. So you're looking for where you start to feel resentment. And where resentment lies, that's where your boundary is. And you need to say, like, okay, where where is it? I'm pissed when they asked for this, but not that. So what does that mean where my boundary is? Mm. Right? And let that be your guide. To try to identify those boundaries, what you are comfortable with giving, because honestly, it, it makes stick to it. It probably makes that money really impotent. So the 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 parents, I'm assuming it was parents who left money to one of the siblings or children and said, "Hey, do with this something great." Well, quickly it can go away if that is broken down into, yeah, twenty different projects. Cousin Billy minor... Bob from four states away that never had anything to do with anybody yeah. is now like. You know, saying he has whatever random need. Yeah. And quickly this savings or this life-saving nest egg that this parent put together to give their child, you know, right. to really help them with, you know, whatever that need was quickly becomes right. insufficient. Right. So the other thing you can do, too, is mm. like the gold standard of this boundary is like, no. That's the full sentence. But the reality is, and myself included, like, I can't do that. 
Like, I just can't. So I'm going to have to, like, qualify it with something. Like, blame some reason that I just can't give you this money. So you blame a financial advisor. You blame whatever. It's a great idea. Externalize the issue. Externalize it. It's external to you, but you hold the boundary. That would be my recommendation, too, is get a financial advisor, Mm -hmm. somebody who will help you manage this, and then you can just externalize it. For my one listener, blame me. Like, I'll take it right now. <laughs> Shannon said I couldn't give you Shannon $5. Shannon says, no, <laughs> your child may not go to college on my dime. <laughs> That's I, a great I'll idea. I'll take it. But Financial advisor is probably If you are not at the phase where you can say no unapologetically and deal with the onslaught, right? Because when people have boundaries, other people aren't going to like that. And they're going to challenge it. And there's like a whole slew of ways that they challenge it. Yeah. And that can just... It's not necessarily the boundary that's the hard part. It's the holding it up. So not building the wall, but keeping the wall propped up. That can just be exhausting. Mm -hmm. And so the easy way out sometimes is just blame it on this external thing. Yeah. I will take that fall. And and honestly, it's almost honoring the person who gave it to you's wishes. You can also look at it that way. This person gave it to me, and I'm really trying to do the best I can with this money to the to maximize its potential, mm-hmm. and to disseminate it and to really break it down into smaller parts is going to really create, well, just not the situation that the person who gifted it to you wanted. And if you want to use that money to do like two weeks in Tahiti, by all means, do that. Yeah. It is yours. Yeah, we'll go with you. By the way, yeah, yeah. we need two extra tickets to Tahiti. Uh, just I for like this economy advice. plus <laughs> three. Jesse oh, wants in. Jesse wants in too. Okay. <laughs> yes. Jesse, are you cool with economy plus? I can handle that. Okay. See? Okay. Um, and then you're good. And then just give us some I'll of the get money. The room. And then... I'll take care of the room myself. I just want airfare. <laughs> <laughs> and then that, yeah, yeah. So you want to look for resentment. Let that be your guide. Am I okay with it or am I really not? And it's being honest with yourself and also being aware you may also be violating your own boundaries. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'll do it. And then you're just like pissed afterwards. Mm. It's like, wait a second. I said yes. Oh, I violated my own boundary. It's kind of facing that hard truth of like, oh, I did this to myself as well. Yeah. There's a lot of – so. Also, advice on loans versus gifts. A lot of people will say, oh, it's just a loan. Just give this to me, you know, and I'll pay you back, I promise. There are no loans. There are only gifts. Yeah. Let me just cut to the last chapter right. of this book. <laughs> right. It's View very it as thing. a gift. Yeah, it has to Do be. Do not have any expectation that you will ever get it back mm-hmm. because it's within that expectation, right? The gap between expectation and reality is where bad things happen, right? Like that's where we feel anger, resentment, disappointment sadness, you know, all of that stuff. Well, I expected you to pay it back. Reality is I can't afford to. So maybe only loan what you can afford to lose as well. But, you know, expect that that money is not coming back if you you do loans. Treat it like a, you can call it loan, but in your mind, you need to be framing it as I never expect to see this money again, Mm -hmm. right? Because what is worth more, this friendship or the money? Mm. For some people it might be like, well, I want the cash. Okay, that's your prerogative. But if the relationship is top priority, it's never a loan. It's always a gift. We need to start a second pocket, like a dear dear Warren Buffett. Dear Buffett. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think I'm your girlfriend. But he's alive, so she should probably be on that podcast, I suppose. And he's kind of powerful. He probably can't, like, You think he'd give us a loan? (laughs) A gift. I think he would give us a gift. We would tell him, like, it would be a gift, not a loan. Yeah. At least we're honest. Yeah. God gave him that money to give to us to, to do yes. this podcast. Yes. That's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. All right. What's the next one? Yes. Dear Sigmund, COVID sucks. I've been sick with COVID for almost three weeks. I'm not 100%, but I'm grateful to be better than last week. My problem is that I'm so mad at people who either deny the severity of COVID or who are so lax with their protocols. This virus is miserable to many and still deadly to some. Being frustrated with idiotic people is not conducive to recovery. Yeah. Okay, well, there's no question True. in that, but yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, I'm with you too. I wanted to get a mask that just says science with a period <laughs> at the end of it. I saw them and I didn't buy it and I should have. <laughs> science, I it's real. Yeah. Science is real. Um, 
Yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, this does open a whole can of worms. I've never seen a, such a public health crisis become so politicized and, you know, mm-hmm. my short years. But um, that is, is <laughs> I yes. wonder what the, where this anger is really coming from, too, because this individual is identifying that I got sick and this was probably preventable. If folks had just done as much of the isolating and guidelines initially that were recommended, then I might not be in this situation. And now watching people continuing to propagate the virus and ignoring protocols um, or at least advice from the CDC, I I can see being very, very frustrating. Um, And personally, I can't imagine those who have lost loved ones to this, you know, unnecessarily. Um, probably a very, very similar experience. Um, I feel you. And hopefully we can really learn something from this pandemic. I would really like, like I kind of wished for it all along that this could be a very unifying experience. Here is a common external enemy that really puts us all at risk equally as humans, as Americans, as you know, compatriots and, and folks who are all in this together. But really what we saw was a very dividing uh, experience, which is unfortunate because there was a common enemy, a bug, a virus, an invisible enemy. And um, instead we have kind of turned on each other uh, as opposed to the actual causative agent. That's been disheartening. All of that. I agree with it. <laughs> all that so get better feel better soon that's what i'm gonna say to this person feel better soon uh i can only hope and pray that in the next pandemic that we have more of an organized approach and uh more of a unified experience in um next pandemic uh, it's it's it, it will happen it will happen and hopefully the next one isn't more deadly than this i mean this one was only you know in the low uh single digits of mortality single digit millions oh, right i'm sorry so percentage wise like you know five percent mortality rate of those yeah. who become infected have you know five mm-hmm. percent of those right you know or, right. or less depending on which age group but um but there is a very good risk that there could be you know a very transmissible agent that has a much much higher uh death toll I would also say you are not alone in your anger. Yeah. There are lots of people that are mad. I mean, I treat clients all around the world, and one of the common complaints that I hear is people are really pissed off that they are being what they perceive to be as punished because other people are not following the rules. So because you are not wearing your mask, because you are not complying, I've got to be in lockdown for this much longer. Won't you just follow the rules so we can all get out of this sooner? Mm-hmm kind of thing and it's like the longer we're in lockdown the longer i'm not getting a paycheck the longer i don't get a paycheck the more the entire business is at stake wear your damn mask so i can get back to work so that my whole entire livelihood isn't threatened i think you know we do have a listener in a lot of different countries and i think everyone's in various states of lockdown right now Mm -hmm. and we in america are enjoying some of the most freedom that anyone in the world has right now true um that other places don't have that because people are not following the rules and i do empathize with you for being angry at that because Mm -hmm. there is true suffering based around that there is the whole counter argument of oh it's not real all that well science yeah i mean but then that leads me to the whole thing of like why do people believe in conspiracy theories and that's like a whole podcast episode of like why do conspiracy conspiracy theories exist and how do they gain traction Mm -hmm. right because i think that part and parcel to this discussion is also that one yeah i was i was listening to another podcast not too long ago and they're talking about how lies spread at I think it was tenfold. Or, you shouldn't or, be listening to anything other than Dear but Sigmund. Dear Sigmund. <laughs> like, I don't so even know why you brought podcast. that up on air. Oh, my goodness. But it was that lies disseminate at, at X-fold rate faster than any truth does. Yeah. Well, Mark Twain, didn't he? Mark Twain said um, a lie can run around the world while the truth is just putting on his shoes. Oh, that, I didn't know that. I remember, who is it? You didn't read my refrigerator magnets. <laughs> <laughs> 
There's another one that I really liked is, uh, believe, uh, nothing of what you hear and only half of what you see. And, uh, gosh, it wasn't Poe. Was it wasn't Edgar Allan Poe. Jefferson the, um, or something? No, it was, oh, gosh. It was kind of in a, in a fear genre. It was the large guy who walked into his frame. It was like his silhouette was drawn in, in, on the Alfred television. Alfred Hitchcock? Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah? I think it was him. Yeah. I don't know. Somebody's going to Google right, it. All right, listener, like, you just watched idiot. American history education play out in real time. <laughs> we don't know anything. I'm like 14 years of higher education, and that is, uh, I can't remember. There's this big fat <laughs> guy in a that shadow. That guy got a really big belly, and, uh, and yeah, there were lots of drew birds. A line. Birds were in the <laughs> birds. <laughs> Gosh, I'm going to be so wrong, too, but uh, yeah. Yeah. All right, last question of this episode. Dear Sigmund, I'm a submarine veteran that since getting out years ago have had continuous problems with anxiety and depression which leads me to a lot of reclusive behavior and have a hard time feeling joy. Is there anything I could do that would help finding that joy in life again? P.S. At this point I have been thought journaling to better understand my automatic thoughts. Mm-hmm. That's a hard question. I will say that um, the idea comes to mind immediately of what were some maybe precipitating factors for this individual, which will probably have a large bearing in, you know, what the consequences of this isolation and of these. It sounds breathing like breathing other people's farts for yeah, six months, right? You know, yeah. Like that's not I good mean, for anyone. That's really hard. It yeah. is really yeah. a difficult situation to be in. So you're saying that someone who has a hard time recovering from traumatic events, either big T or little T there's science has shown us that there's like preexisting unsettledness. Yeah. Or there things. could be right. I'm a more anxious state person or I, um, you know, there, there's a lot of studies that look at PTSD and two people in the Humvee, both got blown up by the IED, and one of them gets severe PTSD and the other doesn't. And what is the difference between these two individuals? Family life growing up. Yeah, and it could be anything. It could be, you know. But isn't that a big one, though, that we know that the original attachment in childhood profoundly affects resiliency later in life? Yes. Sigmund would, Sigmund would, yes. And there's a so. Am I pleasing to Sigmund? Very much so. Okay. <laughs> so um, yeah, so absolutely, these anxious attachments. You're so right. These life experiences, these developmental well, adversities that you face in development, uh, adverse childhood experiences, also known as ACE scores, A C E, which is freaking amazing. Incredible. And so any like, listener should probably look this up because yes. you can really. And the TED Talk by the woman that oh, came up. Oh, started? You haven't watched it? No, not the TED Talk. Oh, there's a TED Talk by the woman who basically came up with the whole concept of ACE studies. And she does. it's like a 17-minute TED Talk. It is life-changing. Oh, wow. Oh, I'm totally going to look that up. You should. Yeah. You should. I'm kind of shocked you don't know about it. Hmm. I'll let that go, though. Well, I did a lot of research in my residency about ACE scores. And yet you didn't know, watch this I video. I know. Well, I just, you know, I just, uh, I don't know what the internet is. It's the webs. The interwebs. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah. So, so there's a lot of stuff that can probably lead to your own resilience uh, being more robust or, or less. So, so it um, wasn't just the sub experience. You're saying we got to look at what came before the time on the submarine. And after. And what come after. Yeah. Like, it's I'm just not, curious. We can't just say, well, it's because of that we've got to look at the totality of your life because yeah. it doesn't exist in a vacuum. And the question was, is like, what was specifically the question? Um, is there anything I can do to help find joy in life again? Yeah, and I think that that's kind of the area that I was focusing on is probably that is going to be more easily identified by things that you have um, had to overcome in the past as well. You could say, well, hey, I overcame this through thought journaling. It sounds like this guy has already done some research into this and identified, hey, this is something that's helped in the past. So therefore, it does have a higher likelihood of helping again. Um, 
some people it's medication. You know, if, if this is a if there's a post-traumatic stress disorder here, if there's a major depressive disorder underlying this, uh, a lack of joy is also known as the term anhedonia. A n hedonia, h e d o n i a. Anhedonia is just like a I don't feel joy or pleasure in the things that I once did previously. And that is a diagnosable symptom in a greater context of things that might be, you know, major depressive disorder. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd probably look into the more larger concepts and then whittle down and whittle away those more major things that could be leading to this. And then, uh, and, and Shannon, you're going to have, I would say, probably the most benefit in answering somebody like this with therapeutic interventions and what you can do therapeutically to treat this? Well, first I would say that the reclusive behavior is doing the disorder. You are pandering to the toddler that is anxiety, mm -hmm. right? And so what's going to happen is just staying home isn't going to be enough. Now you're going to have to stay in your bedroom. And, you know, the world's just going to get smaller and smaller because basically anxiety is going to become insatiable. And so how do we break that? It's this thing called exposure therapy. And it's the only therapy that we know that science has conclusively said is an effective treatment for anxiety. Exposure therapy is fancy for white knuckle it, which means, <laughs> yeah. which means go do that thing that's causing you anxiety right some people so like snakes so exposure therapy some people have extreme yeah, fear of that. snakes yeah but fuck i'm not doing it so they think about snakes <laughs> yeah, i'm not doing it <laughs> no i love it no do not expose me i will kill you yeah um, exactly so yeah the idea of uh, of you know you think about a snake and then you look at pictures of a snake and then the next session you hold a rubber snake you look at the then, snake across the room yeah and you just ex slowly expose yourself more and right, more and more right. and, and, and you're building during that time what we call distress tolerance mm -hmm. which is your ability to sit in those uncomfortable thoughts and we know that every time that you're uncomfortable you're actually rewiring and remapping your brain the brain is actually building new neuropathways during that time at which you were most uncomfortable. So what we're doing is pushing you into these uncomfortable times enough to build a new neuropathway and then pulling back to safety, pushing out, pulling back, pushing out, pulling back until we can get essentially what is a new highway built in your brain to where you're not associating, oh my God, freak out time with whatever the stimuli was. And in this case, it's like going out and doing stuff. It's, it's, Basically, I mean, he doesn't say he has agoraphobia for the sake of argument. We'll just say that, like, there is sort of this general, like, I don't want to go anywhere or do anything. I don't want to be around people. Not really agoraphobia, but still. That's what you were explaining before. I was going to right. flesh that out because that was a great point before. You know, the, the more power you give the anxiety, the less and less you're willing to do because the anxiety kind of rules or dictates your behavior. Mm -hmm. um, so much so this idea of uh, agoraphobia is a lot of people say kind of in in societal terms. oh you just don't go out of your house you stay in your house all the time but that's not specifically what it is it's fear of being trapped or caught in a situation from which there is no escape and the idea is often like i'm in the grocery store and i have these panic attacks and i cannot get out you know from this anxiety or i mm -hmm. cannot escape mm -hmm. this anxiety or there's no rescue for me there or mm -hmm. that is a vulnerable situation so it becomes that the safe place is your home mm -hmm. and that's why people say oh you don't leave your house because you have agoraphobia mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so you're going to be uncomfortable you, there are going to be times which you will at, be asked to white knuckle it which just means dear god get me through this kind mm -hmm. of thing it is in those times anxiety will build, 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 build. And then when the fear does not happen, anxiety will crash. This is not going to be instantaneous. This is something that takes a long time to do. And I often, you know, I, I really am a big visual person. So I equate it to um, your brain is kind of like the American Wild West in the 17 and 1800s when, and this is really gonna show my Lancaster County roots, there's Conestoga wagons moving out across the prairie. What do those wagons do? They build ruts, right? And what happens when you come out of that rut? Well, it's rocky, it throws everything, stuff gets all discombobulated, right? So you want to stay in the rut. Your brain wants to stay in that rut. Well, I've thought this way, this is the only way we think about it. If I go out of that, 
all mayhem happens. No, I'm staying in the rut. What you're doing is saying to your brain, actually, we are coming out of the rut and we're going to build a new path. We're going to head east now because we can't go south anymore. We've got to turn and go east, right? When you come up out of that rut, it is going to be rocky and bouncy, okay? But if you stay the course, right? Feel a little unsafe. Feeling a little unsafe. It's a little bit bouncy, right? And then you go back and you follow that same path again. Not quite so bouncy. There's a little bit more give in the grasslands there, whatever it is, right? Coming up out of the rut isn't so much because there's a worn path that's going to show you how to now turn east, right? That's how I equate it. You've got to be able to tolerate coming out of the rut and building the new roadway, the new ruts, going a different way. Follow the Oregon Trail. Yeah, just don't die of dysentery on the way. <laughs> you got dysentery. You died. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. The other thing, to too, I like game. to do is, so we talk about anxiety being a temperamental toddler, right? And it's one thing to use words about it and everything else, but to create a visual of it, a tangible thing that you can see, print out a picture of an incorrigible toddler and put it somewhere where you can see it. And that's going to remind you, that is who I'm negotiating with when it tells me you just need to stay home tonight. Or, you know, grocery stores are unsafe or whatever it yeah, is. You can't get on that elevator. Is... That elevator is, right. yeah. You're going to look at this incorrigible toddler and be like, am I really listening to you right now? You know, like there is something about taking it from just being words that exist in your brain to something that you're seeing. Mm -hmm. Right? I think it actually activates different areas of your brain, but. I don't know. It's probably above my pay grade. Get this physical entity that represents your anxiety. And you're going to negotiate with that thing. You're going to literally take the feeling from inside your body and put it outside. And say, all right, let's right. talk. And you'll quickly realize how uh, irrational. Exactly. That, that exactly. Because you're going to be looking at this like picture of this screaming kid having a meltdown. And you're like, seriously, I'm entertaining this? Mm -hmm. Right? It works. Right? Now, you don't want, oh my God, everybody's going to know. No, put it someplace where nobody else is mm -hmm. going to see it. Put it someplace where it's discreet and it's meant just for you. It doesn't have to be like on a billboard, just for you. Yeah. And flooding should not be expected. So, so the idea of exposure therapy is what we described. Right. Briefly. We don't want to get to the point where we call it flooding, flooding which is yeah. where, like, exactly that you're flooded with emotion yeah. and i'm afraid a of snakes so i'm going to jump in a pit of snakes like indiana jones like fear factor yeah right kind of stuff yeah, that's not healthy Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> i'm flooded um. right now um, <laughs> no you don't you want to stay on this side of it you want to feel it's kind of like visiting um tenets of education the scaffold effect mm -hmm. take them to uncomfortable but not beyond and back you know push out and retreat back push out and retreat back we don't want to be like you don't teach somebody to swim by throwing them in the deep end you just don't they're going to create more anxiety they're going to almost drown they're going to choke on a bunch of water and say, i told you so see that was dangerous exactly yeah. you've just reinforced the anxiety we do not do that mm -hmm. right so that's what you want to be careful of doing externalize the anxiety represent it personify it that raging toddler, you know, get a picture of it. Or however you see your anxiety, you yeah. know. Like <laughs> often if we're totally relaxed and I say, just picture your anxiety and tell me what it looks like, you will get a visual. Voldemort. Mm -hmm. So I'm picturing. <laughs> see, exactly. And that spontaneously just came to you. Yeah. That's Voldemort. Yeah. That's not what my anxiety looks like. I asked my eight-year-old what hers looks like, and I got a very elaborate drawing. Complete oh. with two pets. <laughs> Look just like mommy. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, it did not. <laughs> I take umbrage with that. Um, this but, is a good question. I like this one. But it really, mm -hmm. if you can make your anxiety, if you can separate yourself from your anxiety and see it as an entity that inhabits you, you can better negotiate with it. Mm -hmm. It is a negotiation. Because it isn't you. It is this thing that is fighting you. It is not you. It is you. this thing that is fighting yeah. you. And it is a temperamental toddler that just wants its own way. Yeah. Wow. Thanks for listening. It's yeah. another episode of Dear Sigmund. 
Yeah, and if you'd like to hear us ramble on with answers to your question without actually being in a relationship to it with us, um, drop us an email or even better, a voicemail um, at dearsigmund.com and we will answer your questions. Right now we are answering each and every question um, without fail. Yeah, and if you do need any help, uh, seek treatment, right? Seek treatment. We are um, not your treatment. Yeah. Yeah. Right. This is solely for entertainment and, uh, well, kind of not so funny answers to, <laughs> to questions. Educational purposes. Yeah. So thanks for listening, though. Either way. Bye. See ya.